let us read God's word together. Chapter 2 of Matthew and verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born the king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. And when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child, and as soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. And after they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star that they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. And when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up. He took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt. And where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. And when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time that he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Amen. And we thank God so much for his word to us. We'll turn to Matthew chapter 2, those verses that we read a moment or two ago. It's often the case that we look at the story of the wise men in these days after Christmas, being after the birth of Jesus that they came. But often we look at the wise men, and tonight we're going to maybe uh, shift our focus a little bit and look at Herod. Uh, Herod, this character in the Christmas story that we uh, often uh, skip over, uh, sometimes called Herod the First or Herod the Great. And in some ways, he is a, a great ruler, a great figure of history, actually. Um, but then he comes up against Jesus Christ at the end of his life, at the beginning of Jesus' life, at the end of his life, and he shows himself to be anything but great. He shows himself to be an enemy of the Lord Jesus. There are a number of Herods in the Bible. Uh, this is uh, Herod the Great, and, and he, he dies almost immediately after uh, the birth of Jesus. 
Now, why should we look at this? Well, uh, a, couple, a couple of reasons here uh, straight off that we want to mention. Um, first of all, it, it's, it's useful for us to study in, in some depth the accounts of those in Scripture who reject Christ. Sometimes it's not what we're drawn to, but, but it's useful for us because it helps us better understand the hostility of the world to the gospel and the hostility of the human heart uh, to the gospel. We might understand better why the world reacts against the gospel so strongly. I think we'll see something of that tonight. We, we uh, maybe then understand the reaction of our family and friends and, and neighbors around us, perhaps, uh, some of them. Uh, this is a, a case study in, in a rebellious human heart laid bare, and there are plenty of rebellious human hearts in our world. But there's also a sense in which this helps us understand some of our own rebellion, even as Christians, if we're Christians here tonight, because we know that there are, in some ways, the differences between Christians and non-Christians are so great. You know, Corinthians, the old is gone, the new has come, new creation. Difference is so great, destiny is so different. But there are other ways in which Christians and non-Christians are closer together, in that the rebellion of the the unconverted human heart continues to be the sorts of rebellion against which the converted heart struggles. And so even as we see some of the things that Herod struggles with here tonight, we'll see echoes of that, different, but echoes of those struggles in some of our own lives. So we might find, therefore, that as we look at this, we, we understand better the unending battle between faith and unbelief that happens in the life of the believer as well. Well, the context of, of Herod here, of course, is the visit of the wise men. They come uh, to Jerusalem looking for a king. And I have to say, if you'd asked me before this week where the wise men went to first, I would have said to the palace, to Herod. But it doesn't look as if the text says that. It looks as if they come to Jerusalem looking for a king. And they start asking everyone in the city the question in verse 2, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. I think the sense is that they have come to Jerusalem. They're absolutely convinced that everybody in Jerusalem will know what it is they have traveled so far to see. And they begin, just as they enter the city, to say, well, so where is he? And they begin to ask this question again and again, perhaps don't get very far. Word gets to Herod, and whether he sends for them or they are sent there, he, they end up before him. It tells us that he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Well, why should this be? Well, let's think a little bit about, about Herod. He, he is a, a major figure in, in world history. Uh, his life intersects with people that we will have heard of, like Julius Caesar, Mark Antony, Cleopatra, Octavian, or Caesar Augustus. There's, there's lots written about him in history. There's some of his major construction work still visible today. If you've ever been in Jerusalem and you've stood at the Wailing Wall, you have seen things that Herod uh, commanded to be built. He was born in 73 B.C., in southern Palestine. He had a long political career by the time Jesus arrives. Jesus, we think, maybe born around 5 BC. And so, so Herod's getting on for 70 years old whenever we meet him here in Matthew chapter 2. Now, you might remember that last Sunday morning, 
a lot of history here that some of us find interesting and some of us maybe less so. But last Sunday morning, we, we said a little bit about the time between the Testaments, the 400 years between uh, the last of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. And remember that, that uh, Judea was under Greek rule for a part of that time, but there was about 200 years whenever Judea was independent and it was ruled by the what's called the Hasmonean dynasty, the Maccabees family and their descendants and so on. And towards the end of that time, uh, the dynasty began to fight among itself and the great Roman general Pompey uh, seized the opportunity of their instability and he took uh, Jerusalem and eventually Herod's father, a man called Antipater, he was installed as the procurator, the sort of uh, finance minister of Judea alongside a, a Hasmonean puppet king. And Herod had, uh, Herod's father, Antipater, he had great ambitions for his young son whenever Herod was only 16 years old. Uh, Mark Antony uh, wheeled through Jerusalem and the two of them, he, he was about 10 years older, and the two of them became firm friends. And, and uh, you see some of these great world figures uh, interacting, and, and uh, his father really wanted him to do well, and so he gave him the job of being the prefect, the sort of the, uh, the, the boss of the Galilee region. He was a young man at that stage in his 20s. He was a pretty fierce administrator and ruler at that point, and he put down some uprisings uh, very, very fiercely indeed. And Judea continued to be the center of a very uh, unstable region. Herod's father, Antipater, was a assassinated by a tax collector, never trust a tax collector, and uh, Herod <coughs> became Tetrarch of Galilee. Sorry, if there are any tax collectors in here tonight, please ignore that previous remark. And, and uh, Herod became Tetrarch of Galilee, and, and in 40 BC, the Parthians, who, who came from the east, uh, the Parthians invaded Jerusalem, and Herod escaped with his life to Rome. He was one of several sort of sub-rulers at that time. He escaped to Rome. And uh, Rome backed him, and in 40 BC, he was declared to be the ruler of Judea. The only problem was somebody else was ruling Judea at the time, so it was a wee bit of a, a poison chalice. But, but they allowed him to raise an army. He, rose a, he, he raised a, a Roman army, and he invaded, and after a couple of years of, of battles in 37 BC, he, he drove out the Parthians, and he established his kingdom. So now Herod was king of Judea. There he was. He was ruling over the land that he'd had his eye on for, for years. Now, he didn't have an easy time. He, he was not seen as a true Jew. He was an Edomite, a, a descendant of Esau, came down that Esau line. And the, the more devout Jews and the nationalistic Jews had trouble recognizing the legitimacy of his rule. And so he, he did what lots of uh, uh, world leaders have done at that time, he, he, he married to try and fix a problem, never try and marry to fix a problem. And, and uh, he, he divorced his first wife and he married a, a lady called Mariamne, who was from that Hasmonean Jewish line in order to sort of win some favor. And, and he did that with some limited success. He was a very capable ruler in lots of ways. When, when the land went through an economic downturn, he he cut taxes and, and became a little bit more popular. There was a regional famine in 25 BC, and he, he imported lots and lots of grain from Rome and probably saved massive starvation. 
And all the way through this, he, he embarked in great building projects. He, he built city walls. He built the great Antonio Fortress, named after Mark Antony. He great, built the great fort at Masada. Some of you have been there. And of course, in 19 BC, he embarked on the biggest building project of all, the renovation, the, the rebuilding of the temple. It had been rebuilt when the exiles had come back from Jerusalem, from uh, uh, Babylon, and uh, it wasn't a very grand affair. And he built the temple that, that Jesus would have taught in and walked in and, and so on. And uh, it was a, a very grand affair. It took almost 100 years to complete. It was then destroyed in 70 AD when the Romans came to put down an uprising. So that now the only part of what Herod has built that's visible from the surface is the Wailing Wall. So capable leader, shrewd diplomat, in many ways a great figure. Octavian became Caesar Augustus in 27 BC. He, he ruled over the newly formed Roman Empire. And, and such was Herod's status and Judea's status that uh, he visited Herod twice during Herod's reign. So Judah had become the sort of the place to be. It was being talked about. It was quite a spot. But he had a dark side. He was capable of incredible harshness. The people were taxed heavily to build all the things that he wanted to build. And he was conscious that he was disliked by lots of people. And if he perceived a threat to his position, he had it put down immediately and mercilessly. In 10 BC, so we're getting close to the arrival of Jesus now, in 10 BC he had a, a war, a bit of a border skirmish with some people uh, who were around Petra you know, in Jordan, uh, people called the Na Nabataeans. And that didn't go well, and, and Rome was very displeased. Caesar Augustus was particularly displeased. And so he became really paranoid. He thought that people were conspiring against him. And so he began a program of rooting out his suspected enemies. He'd already by this stage put his second wife, Mariamne, to death. And he then went on to have executed her brother, her mother, her grandfather, some of her children, and then whenever he heard that two of his own children were conspiring against him, which maybe wasn't even true, he had them executed as well. He had public executions. He put people in prison and tortured them, all in this increasing paranoia and this effort to keep public order. Whenever he was, here's an indication of the sort of guy he was, whenever he was in the, uh, nearing the end of his life, he, he became quite ill towards the end of his life, and he knew he was going to die or suspected he was, he ordered that all the notable people of all the cities and towns should be gathered up and executed whenever he died so that the land would truly be in mourning. He said, he's reputed to have said, they may not mourn me, but they will mourn. Uh, now the order was never carried out. So you imagine this, this incredible world figure and increasingly paranoid seeing uh, threats to his rule from every corner. And then these people from the far east, well, from Babylon perhaps, come and say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Well, no wonder Herod in that state of mind is thrown into an absolute shambles. He had 
fought and slaughtered and maneuvered his way to be king of the Jews. He was not king of the Jews by birthright. And now here was news of a real threat, a king who perhaps had the proper lineage, who the people might really get behind. And so we can understand then when the Bible says, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Jerusalem knew that if Herod was disturbed, they needed to keep their heads down. So there's the background, as it were, to Herod. We, we, we run over his life so very, very quickly. And uh, yet there's so much sort of background for him. In fact, uh, just uh, in 2007, I think it was, they, they uncovered a tomb that, that is very disputed at the moment, but some people think it is Herod's tomb, certainly in the right place, but it doesn't seem grand enough for the sort of builder that he was. And so it's possible that Herod's tomb has been found. He's, he's a major figure of history. But that's not where the Bible goes with him, of course. The Bible shows us him, partly because of his role within the Christmas story, as it were, but partly it holds him up to say to us, look, look at how this man reacts to Jesus. That, that's how so, so many people who come onto the pages of the Scriptures are put in front of us. Look at how they react to Jesus, well or, or, or terribly badly. And here Herod reacts to Jesus terribly badly. Thinking of just two real words, I guess, to sum up where we're going to go from here. His opportunity, we're thinking about opportunity that he has, that we have too, and his decision. So what about his opportunity? Well, everybody gets opportunities at particular times in their lives for different things, opportunity to make a difference to your life. And Herod has a remarkable opportunity as these wise men come from the east uh, to join with them and worship this child. And you think of a moment, think for a moment, of the, the, uh, the, the, the opportunity, the witness that he enjoys uh, that really ought to have spoken to him. There was the witness of these wise men, first of all. They showed exceptional devotion in traveling all that distance to visit Jesus. They gave gifts that were valuable and significant. Uh, the, the story you have to tell about a particular sign was compelling, and uh, clearly they left no, no doubt for Herod about what their uh, reason for being there was and what the appropriate response to Jesus' arrival was in verse 8. You see, go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Now, of course, Herod doesn't mean that for a moment, but, but it's absolutely clear that the wise men are there to be worshippers and Herod, wanting to impress them, says, well, I realize that that's the appropriate response to the arrival of this king. And so they'd made the case that this child was to be worshipped. Herod had their witness in his life. The great irony of that, of course, here are these pagan uh, magi, astronomers, astrologers, little background in the truth, and yet evidencing genuine devotion and here's Herod, the king of the Jews, with the privilege and responsibility to, to be a true worshiper, but he's acting like an absolute pagan. So they ha he has the witness of these wise men. He has the witness of Scripture, doesn't he? 
because the, the wise men weren't able to follow the star directly to Jesus, it seems. They need something more specific to get them there, and that was the witness of Scripture. And, and Herod knew exactly how to find out what the star had not been able to tell these men in verse 4. It was he who assembled the religious experts together. It was he who asked the question, tell us where the Christ is to be born. The Christ, notice, you see, the Messiah. So, 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 Herod puts together all the pieces and says, this is all about the one that God has promised, the one that God said would come. And he hears the answer in verse 5, in Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. So the Bible speaks to him. He should have been a shepherd to Israel, but he was really a wolf. But he, but he believes it because he acts in the light of its information. So he, here's, here's a man with, with opportunity, with witness of devoted lives, with the witness of Scripture. Quite remarkable. Now, we know that not everybody gets the same opportunity as far as the gospel is concerned. But also we know that God never leaves himself without a witness. At the very least, even for those who have not heard the gospel, there is the witness of what God has made all around us. Romans 1 tells us that. It leaves us without excuse. It ought to uh, have us seeking God. But, but for most of the people we know, for all of us certainly, we have so much more than this. And sometimes we say, well, it's not really fair. They didn't get the same opportunities. But, but that comes back at us, isn't it? Because we should be the answer to our own prayers. And, and we know the truth. We're charged to spread the good news about Jesus. But, but we must know this, mustn't we? That, that, that Herod's problem is mankind's problem. Herod rebelled against the light that he had. It's a rebellion against witness, against opportunity. And, and that's true for, for every human being. There will be no one who says, I, I didn't know, didn't know this. Remember the great uh, atheist philosopher Bertrand Russell was once asked what he would say if he found himself standing in front of God. He didn't believe he ever would, of course, on judgment day. And, and, and God were to say to him, well, why didn't you believe in me? That was what was put to him. And Russell said, I would say, not enough evidence, God, not enough evidence. If, indeed, Bertrand Russell entered eternity with that intention, his words would have dried up and fallen away as he realized that his sin was against the light. Everyone's sin is. Herod had particular opportunity, but so does everyone we know. So do we. What about decision? What, what did he do with all of this opportunity? Well, <clears throat> we know, don't we, when faced with this decision to revere Jesus or remove Jesus, he, he, he seeks to remove him. He, he plans to destroy him. He, first of all, attempts to do it by cunning. He, he seeks to get the wise men to act as his informants, but God steps in and, and uh, he was thwarted in that. He then seeks to destroy Jesus by force, this terrible, terrible slaughter of the innocents as we 
here at call. The, the Bible says he was furious. It's a strong word. He was besides himself with rage. And he gives this most terrible of orders in verse 16 to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. That's a dreadful, dreadful thing, a, a dreadful period in, in Jewish history and in, in all of history. You can imagine the grief of this little community as these little boys are put to death in front of their parents. It's just unthinkable. And you see that he's not taking any chances. He, he gives a, a wide margin as far as age is concerned, and he also gives some margin as far as geography is concerned, its vicinity of Bethlehem as well. Now, Bethlehem wasn't a terribly big place. Scholars think there may only have been about uh, 30 uh, boys killed at this but time, but, but what a terrible order uh, to give. What would have driven him to do this? Well, in, in many ways, it's, it's in character for Herod, isn't it? This is the way he, he has lived his life. He puts down any opposition to himself absolutely brutally, but, but we see here portrayed for us just how, how graphic and aggressive the opposition to Christ can be in a human heart. You see, the desire to be rid of the claims of Christ upon our lives are, are deeply rooted in the hearts of men so that they will stop at nothing to remove all traces of it. And Herod stopped at nothing to be rid of Jesus. What was his decision? Would he crown him as king of his life? No, he would kill him. And it is the, the, the decision that all people face. We are faced with the claims of Christ. Do we receive him or reject him? Do we revere him or remove him? And Herod's choice, you see, is the choice of everyone. Will he be your king? Now, Christ does make clear that his claims are for every person. He, he claims to be our rightful ruler. He calls on us to accept him as king and Lord, and we must either crown him as king, acknowledge him as king, or reject him. Now, we might want to drill down into Herod's heart and suggest a number of things that, was, that were going on for him. We, 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 we might imagine, we've said before, for example, that, that, that we all have, the heart is an idol factory, we all have something that we put at the center of our life, something that we live for, and one of the ways that we can identify what that is, is that we will sacrifice other things to maintain it. And I would suggest to you that perhaps for Herod, it is power. He, he wants to be, he's climbed hard to get to where he is. It's not maybe so much money or, or even reputation, but power is the thing for him. And, and everything else is sacrificed so that he'll be able to hold on to that. You know, all of his principles were flexible so that he remains in power. He, he, builds, he builds a, a, a great Jewish temple according to pretty much biblical sort of principles in Jerusalem, but his principles are flexible enough that in other places he builds pagan temples to other gods. So he sacrifices his principles so long as it will help him remain in power. He sacrifices his relationships. Quite literally, he sacrifices his relations so that he will maintain power. Now, you see, ultimately, whatever is driving people, whatever it is we put at the center of our lives, 
The, the key question is for us, as it is for Herod, is, is who will be king? See, Jesus comes and claims our throne. He says, as it were, that throne that you've installed yourself on in your heart, in your life, is really made for me. And as Herod hears that, he says, well, it is mine, and you will not be on it. Now, I wonder, even as we begin to sort of unpack that and and unpack Herod, can, can you see that in some of the people that you know, that as you unpack the particular excuses that they have, some people that you ask to come along to the carol service, and you say, well, won't you come this year? And they say, oh, no, no, I'm, I'm too busy. It's not for me. It's not for me yet. Can you see that behind those things, the question is, who's going to sit on the throne? But maybe you see, too, that a sort of parallel battle still goes on in many Christians' lives, in all Christians' lives, I guess. The question is today, tomorrow, will I live as if Jesus is king of my life? Or will I chase after some other things that, that when I'm thinking clearly and biblically, I know shouldn't be what I should chase after, but but sometimes in the moment that they are, they are. I'll sacrifice anything for my reputation, sacrifice anything for my comfort, sacrifice anything to maintain a relationship and at the expense of the truth. Do you recognize that battle? Don't we need to cry out as God's people, as we enter a new year, as we think about what we want to be in the year ahead, oh Lord, Help me to live with you as king every moment of my life. Opportunities and decisions. Well, decisions have consequences, don't they? We see that with Herod. We we, we didn't actually read this, but but, uh, you notice that it tells us in verse 19 what happens to Herod. But when Herod died. Bible doesn't fill that statement out particularly. History tells us that he approaches his death with an increasingly uh, mad disposition. He is haunted by the fact that he has murdered some of his most significant members of his family, and, and all the Bible says is that he died. And the point is that he is finite like us. He born, is born, he lives, he dies. It is inevitable. And, and, and the Jesus that he is so opposed to, well, what can we say about him? Well, The Bible says that Jesus is alive. And so all of Herod's attempts at resisting and opposing this Jesus are absolutely futile. He's never going to come out on top because it's Jesus he's up against. And, And in fact, of course, the Herod who was so sure of his own authority and 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 worked so hard to protect his own authority, he was going to have to stand before Jesus. Not before a babe in a manger, but before a a judge and Lord of all, and would have to give an account. What must that have been like? You see, this is 
Herod's fate, it is Herod's consequences as far as his decisions is concerned. And so this is, is why all of us just need to act on the information that we have. It's so important that we do what Herod did not and we bow before this Lord Jesus. For a person may succeed, we know, in, in resisting the claims of Christ right through their lives. They may succeed in ignoring the witness of devoted lies of the Scriptures. But one day, no matter how much they have sidelined Jesus Christ, they will stand before Him. There's a solemnity to this, isn't there? I don't know what your goals will be for 2020. If you're a Christian, maybe one of them ought to be that you should pray more intently for those who are lost. The lostness of the lost weighs lightly upon God's people in our day and generation. And of course, if you're here and you're not yet a Christian, what a kind providence has come into your life that as, as this year comes to a close, as, as you come to this point where you take stock, as we all do, you see so clearly this man who had opportunity, who had witness, who made a really bad decision series of them, and walked away from the Lord Jesus Christ. The question is, will you receive him? Will you revere him? For one day, make no mistake, you will, we will, stand before him. Let's pray for a moment together. Lord, we, we see perhaps more clearly than we have some of the depths of our own rebellion our own ability to run after other things to protect what ultimately will be stripped away from us. And we pray, O oh Lord, that as your word would prompt us and provoke us, that we may be in no question that the most important thing in any of our lives, in the lives that, of, of those that we care for, the lives of those that we know is that they know that Jesus is king and is their king. Is king and is our king. Grant us this mercy, we pray, O Lord. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.